Planet Worker, a world in development. Lebanon, October 2015. Far beyond the sound of gunfire, violence and conflict has devastating consequences for those within its ambit. Beyond the immediacy of risk of harm to life and well-being are the long-term traumatic effects on children and families, carrying the damage into following generations. Lives and dreams are upended as families desperately escape immediate harm for safer havens often taking enormous risks as they do so and rendering themselves vulnerable to further harm and abuse. And often, these supposedly safer places offer scant support in addressing the corrosive social and psychological effects on survivors. These reverberate in the psyche of individuals and the dynamics of deeply affected families. She's calling the father to his father or his... I'm sitting in a room of women wearing headscarves discussing the very serious issue of early marriage. Most of the women are Syrian refugees and many of their stories are similar and tragic. It's a story of despair, with families facing increasingly deteriorating financial circumstances and increasing vulnerability. For some, their conditions have become so desperate they feel they are no longer able to support nor protect their daughters. And these women painfully acknowledge they have arranged marriages to older men. If it is painful for them to tell, it is heart-wrenching for us to hear. Lena, the facilitator, artfully guides the discussion towards potential solutions and how each participant can support each other. We cannot simply give up, we need to help each other to cope, she urges. This discussion group is one of a series trying to assist Lebanese and Syrian families to manage the stresses of their lives and the risk of gender-based violence. Included in these sessions are themes dealing with anger management, sexual harassment and self-care. It could have been anywhere in the world, but for these women, these sessions are life-saving and life-changing. They are complemented by individual counselling and casework undertaken by facilitators and support professionals like Lena. The support is urgently needed. By Lena's estimate, over 80% of Syrian women suffered severe depression as a result of the trauma of war, dislocation and poverty, and struggled to cope with the basic routine of life and family. Children in these families face health problems too, and many have respiratory and malnutrition conditions. These will worsen as winter closes in. The setting is a community health centre outside Beirut, Lebanon. It's a site that is part of a program to address gender-based violence and is implemented by a medical NGO operating in Lebanon, running across 60 such centres 
in this small country. The program is intended to address the needs of both host Lebanese communities and refugees. The challenge is enormous as over one million refugees from Syria and Iraq now reside in Lebanon, a country with a population of four and a half million and itself recovering from recent conflict. The majority of refugees in Lebanon are not housed in camps and live in areas and buildings and on land inhabited by local Lebanese communities. It is this interaction that can cause tension as both communities try to cope with increasing demand for ever-decreasing resources. As we prepare to leave, an older woman asks to speak to us privately. She indicates her gratitude to her fellow Lebanese residents for hosting them and requests greater efforts to support urgent needs and inter-community efforts at integration. We need each other, but we also need help, she pleads as she bids us farewell. The sign of Lebanon's modern dystopia are all around us as we drive back to the city. Uncollected piles of garbage on every street, the stench symbolic of Lebanon's governmental dysfunction and corruption. Basic services are barely provided to Lebanon's erstwhile citizens, never mind the re recent refugee arrivals. While it is a miracle Lebanon's fragile internecine peace has held in the face of massive conflict on its borders, I wonder how long it can endure before the collapse of its internal basic functions. The next day, we drive through the Bakar Valley to visit more community centres. Ramshackle structures covered in plastic and boards are clustered together on agricultural land as we wind through the landscape. These provide scant protection from the winter cold for the Syrian families who live there. But they also face other risks and dangers. Their children are often required to work for the landowner in return for the family's right to remain, and some of these children face the risk of abuse. It's a return to feudalism, and the children and women bear the brunt of it. But of course, it's terrible for the men too. The older men are often educated and skilled, but have been reduced to eking out a survival doing whatever they can. They watch their families suffer, and experience enormous guilt and frustration as they are not meeting their protective responsibilities. The mental anguish is acute and the despair is pervasive. The pressure turns inward and community centres are experiencing increasing levels of family violence. Anger management and individual counselling support are offered, but it's tough going. Perhaps more tragic is the predicament of young Syrian men. Faced with the situation of a barely surviving family and prohibition on work, young men often return to Syria to fight for whichever faction pays the best wages. Unfortunately, here the Islamist factions and ISIS win hands down. They offer better cash wages than the Syrian rebel factions who rely on ideological or nationalist commitments. And the Assad regime is out of the question. So the Syrian conflict gets fueled by these young men earning money to help their families survive in Lebanon.
You could pull these young men out of this conflict by offering them an alternative livelihood quite easily. But the risk-averse policies of the international aid community and agencies and the reticence of the Lebanese government to offer them any employment rights frustrates this. And so these young men head back into a conflict unwilling but desperate. Back in Beirut, it's a quiet Sunday and my colleague and I walk the green line, the symbol of Shia-Sunni conflict in the civil war years before. Despite an urban renewal program, bullet holes and damaged buildings remain and serve as a reminder of the brutal conflict ending only five years before. We view a famous Art Deco building and a reconstructed Beirut National Museum famous for protecting its precious collection throughout the conflict raging in the streets and neighbourhoods outside by encasing exhibits in concrete. We're bemused by horse racing in a Beirut hippodrome, a bedraggled, muddy remnant of a decadent era. These days, energised by a gaggle of taxi drivers noisily betting handfuls of crumpled Lebanese pounds. I'm charmed by this wonderful, war-beaten city. Like a wizened old friend, its scars and tattoos hinting at a rich but difficult life. My romanticism is blown away in the following week as successive suicide bombs kill 40 people and injure over 200 more in the Hezbollah-controlled southern Beirut suburb of Burj al-Barajne. Tragically, many of them children. Yet another atrocity in a sea of atrocities. It's the biggest suburban bombing since the end of the civil war and the arrest of Syrian and Lebanese ISIS perpetrators in a nearby Palestinian refugee camp threatens the fragile political balance of Lebanese political factions. Remarkably, there's no immediate or evident retaliation. Leaving Beirut, I wonder at the injustice and insensibility of it all. Girls consigned to the misery of early marriages, young men returning to fight and die a horrible death in a terrible war, children killed or maimed in their neighbourhood streets. It doesn't have to be so, but the politics of the international aid bureaucracy, the Lebanese government, and the Western world at large will not allow this to end. It's crazy, and it means that the young will suffer again.